Good morning. Join me in prayer, will you? Father, we read these passages and, and we hear about the enemy of our souls and his desire to defeat us. And I pray that as we look into your word now, we will gain confidence that we can defeat him and his tactics by standing on the truth of your word. So arm and equip us this morning with your word that we may live victorious lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sorry I, I missed last week. Uh, I got stuck. Uh, we were traveling back on Saturday from a board retreat with Interim Pastor Ministries, and my flight was delayed and then finally canceled. I'm thankful for Pastor Steve that about well, three weeks earlier we had been preparing for this possibility, and so I'm, I'm glad he was able to stand in. And uh, we are uh, going to just kind of move past Nehemiah 5 into Nehemiah 6 this week. Uh, if, if you really want a sermon on Nehemiah 5, just talk to me and I'll record one. But uh, otherwise, I think maybe some of your growth groups uh, went through the questions from Nehemiah 5 anyway. And so we're moving on to chapter 6 this week. Military experts say that uh, the Russians have developed and positioned the most effective anti-aircraft system in the world. They have radars, especially over their major cities, that can detect anything at any altitude. They have missiles that can uh, intercept nearly any threat. Uh, there is no city uh, more heavily defended than Moscow. And, uh, and so it, it was an interesting thing when in 1987, a German teenager piloted a rented Cessna, flew it into Soviet then airspace, uh, buzzed the Kremlin a couple of times and landed in Red Square. Uh, he, uh, before he was taken away by the authorities, had the opportunity to greet a few surprised citizens of Moscow and to sign a few autographs. And uh, at the end of the day, he was elated, even though he was imprisoned, uh, and the Russian government was embarrassed. A couple of top generals were sacked, and the world was amused. Gordon MacDonald tells that story in a book he wrote called Rebuilding Your Broken World because it has a lot to do with his own life. In a sense, it's his story. Someone asked him once, if Satan were to try to blow you out of the water, what would he do? He thought about it for a bit, and he said, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I know there's one area where he could never get me. That's in the area of my personal relationships. There I'm as strong as a person can get. And it was in that very area where he fell. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. I had the privilege of having lunch with Gordon MacDonald a couple of years ago, and I, I can tell you that he is a humbler and wiser man today than he was back when he made that statement long ago. 
After many years on the sidelines, God is using him again and using him in wonderful ways by God's grace. It's really good to see how God has restored him and restored his ministry, and yet it is frightening to think of how close he came to being permanently disqualified. And what you need to know today is that Satan wants to blow you out of the water too. Nothing would make him happier than to sideline you in the cause of Christ. And the question is, how will he try to do it? And how can we keep that from happening? It's not just pastors and church leaders that Satan wants to blow out of the water. We each have a role to play in building the kingdom of God. God has equipped each of us with a spiritual gift in order to build up the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. He's called us to build his kingdom one life at a time. So what's our role as individuals. I think there are a few key roles that each of us are called to play regardless of the spiritual gifting we may have or the specific calling we may have. We are each called to grow in Christ, to grow in a relationship with him. It's just a part of what we ought to be doing. We never get past that. We continue to grow like, like a tree. It only stops growing when it dies. We're all to reproduce ourselves spiritually in the lives of others, our children and, and others around us as well. We're all called to be salt and light in our culture. These are things God has called all of us as followers of Christ to do. And we have an enemy who wants to blow us out of the water, an enemy who wants to disqualify us in running our race. But just like a criminal leaves evidence at a crime scene, Satan always leaves his mark on his attempts to disqualify us. He can't help it. And if we are wise to his schemes, as Paul tells us to be in 2 Corinthians 2, then we will understand what he's trying to do and we will gain the victory. How do we do it? I just want to give you four simple words today. And, and this really is the sermon in a nutshell. Look for the lie. Look for the lie. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking of Satan and says, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Look for the lie. Every temptation is predicated on a lie. Adam and Eve fell to the tempter because they believed his lie. He said, God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows what it will do for you. He knows it will make you like him. He's holding back. He's holding out on you. He's holding something back. So they believed the lie. And they acted on it. And they disrupted fellowship with God for themselves and for every human being who has followed them. And every sin since that very first one has taken place because somebody believed the lie. Satan always lies. He uh, disguises it well as truth, 
But if you look at the temptation long enough, you will find the lie. And in finding it, you can affirm the truth of God's word and you can gain the victory. Three times in Nehemiah chapter 6, we see Nehemiah finding the lie and standing on God's truth. If you haven't opened your Bibles to Nehemiah yet, I'd encourage you to do that. Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah finds the lie and stands on God's truth, and because he does, he wins the victory. And we can too. Whenever we are tempted, there will be a lie in the temptation. Count on it. But if we can find the lie and affirm the truth of God's word, we will gain the victory. So, three lies in Nehemiah chapter 6. The first lie comes in the form of diversion. Diversion, we see it in verses 1 through 4. Just a friendly meeting, just a friendly meeting, verses 1 through 4. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakephirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Diversion. Just a friendly meeting. That's all we're asking for. Chapter 6 opens with these three, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and the rest of the enemies, getting word that the wall around Jerusalem was all but completed. It was at its full height. There were no gaps any longer, and the only thing left was to hang the doors in the gates. This then would be the last opportunity for the enemies of the people of God to... uh, uh, to um, be able to attack the city. Once those doors were installed in the gates, the city would be fully defensible. And the only way to attack it would be by building siege ramps. So it was essential to them to stop Nehemiah now before he put the doors in the gates. The enemies proceeded then with great subtlety, just the way Satan, the enemy of our souls, does. But Nehemiah's response to each step the enemies took showed he was not unaware of their schemes. So the first thing they suggest is a meeting at a neutral site. Verse 2, they ask him to meet them in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Seems like a reasonable offer, right? We're reasonable people. We take reasonable offers. Probably about a day's journey. And they're saying, "Let's, let's talk. Just a friendly meeting. Let's talk. We've got a neutral place in mind, and we can talk if you'll just meet us halfway. What would be the purpose of the meeting? The message doesn't say, but it would be reasonable to uh, assume that they would be suggesting ways in which they could cooperate since they were living in the same region. Just a friendly meeting. Maybe they even suggested that they could find a way to bury the hatchet after their conflict in chapter 4. But Nehemiah knew better. Verse 2 tells us he knew they intended to do him harm. He knew what they really wanted. 
How did he know? I don't know. The text doesn't say. Maybe God revealed it. Maybe the character of these men had already sufficiently proved it. But one thing was for sure, their objectives and his were fundamentally different. Nehemiah knew since the first offer to rebuild the temple that their objectives were different than his. And collaboration is never appropriate when your goals are different. The temptation for Nehemiah was to put down the work, travel a day's journey or more, just to look reasonable. Pursuing something that never had a chance of succeeding. And so his response is there in verse 3. I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. I'm, I'm involved in something important, I'm not coming. And verse 4 tells us that this happened four times. Nehemiah continued to stick to his guns. He would not be diverted from the work God had called him to. He knew his job wasn't completed until the city was fully defensible. It really didn't matter that he knew his enemies were up to no good because what they were suggesting would have pulled him away from what he knew God wanted him to do. It was a diversion to get him away from the mission God had called him to. That was the basis of his reply four times. I'm not going to be diverted. Now, just think for a minute of the things that divert us from what God wants us to do. What are the things that, that are our diversions? Um, let me just mention a, a couple of them. Uh, one way is, is uh, one way Satan diverts us is through amusement. Uh, we live in a culture that is addicted to amusement. A guy named Neil Postman wrote a book, a fascinating book, a number of years ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in that book, he talks about the very word amuse. Uh, it's a compound word. The first part, or, or the, the second part of it, really, the, the basis of it is muse. The word muse, which means to think. And the A on the front of it means without. Without thought. Uh, without musing. Uh, that's what amusement is. Mindless, passive absorption whether it's into a TV set or a video game or, or something else, generally it's something that's easier than what God has called us to. It's easier to just flick on the tube rather than to open the word of God. And we slide into those easy things. We amuse ourselves to death. Some relationships provide diversion as well from what God calls us to. It's important to be in contact with unbelievers, but we need to be careful which way the influence is going. I work with a bunch of folks in, in something called Honor Flight. Uh, most of us are military veterans. There's some pretty salty language that goes around, and I need to be vigilant to make sure of which way the influence is going. Chuck Swindoll said, if you're working in your garden and you're wearing white gloves, the dirt in your garden will not get glovey. Hmm? Be careful which way the influence is going. 
These things are diversions. They can lead us away from a growing relationship with Christ. Doesn't matter how innocent the diversion is if it takes you away from a relationship with Christ. Don't go there. You don't need to be diverted. Stay at the task. The second lie in Nehemiah chapter 6 came in the form of slander. We find it in verses 5 through 9 where they tell Nehemiah, you better defend yourself. There's some slander going on. Verses 5 through 9. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king, the king, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you were inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. An unsealed letter, slander. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12. This tactic of slander is one of his favorites. Verse 5 speaks of this open letter. NIV renders it unsealed letter. The idea is that in the transmission of this letter from person to person on its way to its destination in Nehemiah, that people would help themselves to reading it since it's open, since it's unsealed. Sanballat wants it read. He wants rumors to spread about what Nehemiah is up to. He counts on Nehemiah's sense of self-preservation. He counts on him being willing to lay aside the work in order to defend his name. But Nehemiah, again, stays at the task, sends a simple reply that just denies the charges. He knows what the slanderers are trying to do, and he's not going to let them succeed. He knows they're trying to weaken the hands of the workers, verse 9 says, and he entrusts himself to God and prays that God would strengthen his hand instead. Slander is a very effective weapon of the enemy. We've all been there, knowing that someone is saying things about us that are sometimes inaccurate, sometimes distorted, sometimes just downright malicious. And our temptation is to drop whatever it is we're doing in order to defend ourselves. Doing the thing Nehemiah did, simply dismissing the thing and pressing on with what God has called us to, is hard to do. We think we've got to defend our name that we'll be hurt if we don't. And Satan uses that tactic of slander so very well. Take Christians away from the work God has called them to. And sometimes he even uses fellow believers to spread words about their brothers and sisters that further the enemy's cause rather than the cause of Christ. 
A.B. Simpson said this, I would rather play with forked lightning or take in my hands living wires with their fiery current than to speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ or idly repeat the slanderous darts which thousands of Christians are hurling on others to the hurt of their own souls and bodies. We don't want to be tools of the enemy and pass along things that are slanderous. What do we do when we find out we're being slandered ourselves, like Nehemiah was? The first thing we need to do is to be sure that what is being said about us really is untrue. Is there some element of truth in it that we need to pay attention to? Is God refining our character in order to make us more like Christ? And then once we're certain that what's being said about us is untrue, we can do what Nehemiah did, simply deny the charges and get on with the task. Press on. Abraham Lincoln had a similar idea. In fact, other world leaders have admired Lincoln's response so much that they've framed it and put it on the walls of their office or on their desk. Douglas MacArthur was one of them. Winston Churchill was another one who quoted Lincoln saying this, if I were to try to read much less to answer all the attacks made on me, this shop might as well be closed for any other business. I do the very best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep on doing so until the end. If the end brings me out all right, then what is said about me won't matter. If the end brings me out wrong, then ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. There's an even better example for us to follow, though, than Lincoln. Jesus himself, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, Peter writes this, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate, and when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We can follow Christ with integrity, And entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, and then let the chips fall where they may. That's easier to say than it is to do. I know in my own ministry, gossip almost did me in, in my early years. I thought about quitting the ministry, but then I realized what was at stake. I realized quitting was exactly what the enemy of our souls wanted me to do, and Quitting would give him the victory. So I stayed on through some hard times, focused on preaching the word and building up the believers around me rather than on the things that were being said about me. God got me through it. It's hard to do what Jesus did when people are saying unkind things about you, but you don't need to be defensive. Let your integrity speak for itself and stay at the task. There's a third lie that shows up in Nehemiah chapter 6. It comes in the form of terrorism. Terrorism. We find it in verses 10 through 14 where they try to convince Nehemiah that his life is in danger. 
Look at verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, why should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Now, note the footnote to that one, because I think the footnote gets the gist of of what the passage is trying to say. To go into the temple to save his life. In other words, to take refuge in one of the inner chambers of the temple. Nehemiah won't do it. He says, I will not go in. Verse 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Terror. Your life is in danger. The effectiveness of terrorism is to make people fear for their lives to the point where they won't do anything. Satan uses terrorist tactics as well. If diversion doesn't take you away from doing what God has called you to do, and if he can't get you to drop what you're doing in order to defend your good name, then maybe he can lure you into a trap by getting you to fear for your life. Now this fellow Shemaiah plays his part well. We find he's a prophet, but he's sold out to the opposition. He may have asked for Nehemiah's help. That might be why Nehemiah goes to his home in the first place. He may have been suggesting his own life was in danger, but then he goes on to suggest Nehemiah's life was in danger. All to trap Nehemiah into going into the temple where they would be lying in wait for him. And where if he survived, he would certainly be discredited for violating the law of Moses since he didn't have access to that part of the temple as a layman, all for fear of his life. And Nehemiah doesn't do it, doesn't take the bait. He won't violate God's word, even though his life may be at stake. How did he do it? How do we do it? It's a matter of confidence in God. When we're confident in God, We don't need to be fearful. We don't even need to be fearful of death. We can stay at the task in front of us, even if our life is at stake. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death can enslave us. Martin Luther said this in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. A friend of mine 
told me once about a guy who picked up a hitchhiker, and once they got underway, the hitchhiker pulled out a gun and pointed it at the driver who had just picked him up. He wanted to steal his car, and the driver looked at the gun and then looked at the hitchhiker and said, you threaten me with heaven. The guy was so astonished that he put down his gun and listened as this fellow explained the gospel to him. He wouldn't have had that opportunity if the fear of death had won the day. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God and God alone. Don't let the fear of death keep you from being faithful to what God has called you to. You don't need to be afraid. Stay at the task. So those were the three lies that were used to try to get Nehemiah not to finish the wall. And the three truths that Nehemiah used to counteract those three lies. The lie, just a friendly meeting. The truth, you don't need to be diverted. The lie, you'd better defend yourself. The truth, you don't need to be defensive. The lie, your life is in danger. The truth, you don't need to be afraid. Those three lies of Satan were specific to Nehemiah's situation, custom-made to take him away from the thing that God had called him to. And what Satan does to try to stop you in your work in the kingdom will be custom-made for you to try to blow you out of the water. What are some of the areas that he's finding success with today? Let me just mention three tactics of the enemy. First, and one that's really working well in our culture today, is sexual temptation. Satan uses this one often in the marketplace where people meet one another each day looking their best, putting forward their best foot. You see the lie? She looks so good every time I see her. Her hair's never a mess, and she's always pleasant. And the truth is, she looks awful in the morning, and she gets cranky. And in 10 years, she'll look just like the person I'm married to. Or the guy at work who is so sensitive and kind. The lie is, he's always like this. This is a lot better than what I've got at home. And the truth is, this guy's on the prowl. Pornography gives us the lie that this person looks so friendly and inviting. But the truth is, if you met her on the street, she wouldn't give you the time of day. That's one. Another that Satan uses really well these days is misuse of the tongue. The lie is, I can say these things and no one will get hurt. Or the person I'm talking about will never trace this back to me. The truth is, it does hurt. Most of the time, the person you're speaking about will find out who said it. And so your reputation will be hurt as well. 
One more. Universalism is so prevalent today in our postmodern age and postmodern thought. The lie is many roads lead to heaven. We hear it all the time. The truth is in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. What happens when you find the lie and stay at the task that God has called you to? Some good things. The work gets completed. The enemies of our soul get discouraged. And God gets the glory. That's a great outcome. You don't need to be diverted. You don't need to be defensive. You don't need to be afraid. Find the lie. And stand on the truth of God's word. And you'll gain the victory. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray that you would help us to see how very well armed we are in the battle with the enemy of our souls, that we can stand on the truth of your word and defeat him each time. So help us, Father, to discern the lie and to stand on your truth for the sake of your glory and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.